Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. I've got two guests on the show. I've got Phil Parnham from Blue Box Partners. Hello, Phil. Hi, hello. And I've also got Steve Hodgson from PCA. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Nice to be on with you. Yeah, good. And I think you actually asked to be on my podcast, didn't you? I did, yes. I kind of had listened to a couple and I thought that... There was I was really flattered because usually, <laughs> usually I have to go around trying to persuade people to talk on the podcast and you just wanted to come on. And so thank you because I know it's taken a little while to uh, for us all to get our diaries together over the summer and lockdown. How has the lockdown and virus shenanigans been for you? It's been interesting. Interesting might be the understatement of the decade, I suppose. But, you know, we had a, we had a very sudden, you know, shock. Um, and half of everything that we do comes from subscriptions, the other half from training, and both stopped in an afternoon. Mm. So, you know, you have to kind of start to reevaluate and think about what you're going to do. So, you know, th- it, was, it was a challenge, but we kept most of the people on. And, you know, we've done quite a lot of stuff and project work and PR and marketing stuff and and actually you know I think that we've 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 done okay the members are in sort of good spirits um most of them are busy at the moment so yeah it's been interesting and I think that the future is kind of going to be tough but you know we're okay yeah and that really resonates with with us at Blue Box actually because we provide technical content to the industry sometimes we deliver it directly and we were lucky that we had our roadshows back in March which seems like an eternity ago now doesn't it Phil but yeah you know we've had to really think about what we do and and how we do it going forward and the surveyor hub actually has been I must admit on many days it's just got me through the fact that it's been a community and something that we can just focus on so it's been interesting yeah if I um one of the early topics of discussion on um, the surveyor hub you know between the surveyors was about when they did get back to work which was relatively early doors really what health and safety requirements were they you know um, sanitizing hands or gloves do you need full ppe was the same for your sector steve was there a lot of discussion about what they should be doing yeah and it was it was it was two-pronged if you like because the vast majority of the people in our sector um yes all right we've got surveyors and people looking at buildings but we've also got a large number of people going out and doing work so um, there were some critical projects where our members were asked not to stop at all. So we were involved in, in underground waterproofing and gas protection and, and even the invasive weed stuff really didn't stop. So one of the things that we did very early on was help members with, with risk assessments, hazard, 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 hazard assessments, these sorts of things, and try to work with them to put together safe systems of work. And that then... Um, really moved um, forward as, as the time went went on uh, and we did the same with with surveyors and, and sort of diagnostic investigations so yeah we, we we did all of that stuff and i think it was well received i think that it was you know none of it was rocket science but i think you know people need to have some validation some help some 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 kind of somebody else sort of patting on the shoulder and telling them that they're, that they're doing the right thing um or if they're not you know steering in the right direction Mm. So yeah, we, we we were involved in all of that stuff and still are. 
that job hasn't finished. So, um, you know, that's kept on this constant review. You know, for, for us, we're, we're now teaching back in the classroom. So, you know, it goes from the site stuff. We now are doing all of that um, evaluation, constant evaluation with teachers. So, so we're chatting here like we're old mates because we know about PCA, but there are a lot of people listening to the podcast, quite frankly, Steve, who have no idea who you are or Phil or me, <laughs> and maybe they're on the wrong podcast. But do you want to, um, for those, the, the uninitiated, explain a bit about PCA, what it's about, what you do? Okay, I will. So the association was founded in 19... 19- 13 or 1914 I think, or something like that well, might, might be a bit later than that and, and the idea was that it was a group of people that came together to look at the dangers um, associated with timber preservation so at the time there were people starting to brew up all sorts of hideous things in barrels to, to kill bugs and fungus um, and they were probably killing as many people as they were bugs so there was some self-regulation anyway the whole thing has kind of morphed and changed over, over a very long time and the BWPDA and the Wood Protection Association came together. It changed the BWPDA that a few years ago then became the, the, the PCA, the Property Care Association. So in, in very, very simple terms, we are a trade body. We are a company limited by guarantee. So the members own the organization. We are a not-for-profit, essentially. So anything that we make as a surplus has to go back into the goals, aims, and objectives of the association. And over the year, we've kind of increased our scope a little bit. So originally it was all bugs and fungus, and then it became bugs and fungus and damp. And now we're also, as I mentioned earlier, involved in underground waterproofing, non-invasive weeds, ground gas protection, and flood stuff. And the kind of the common link, apart from the the weeds, is is moisture. So we are involved in anything that you can think of, really, that is, is about water in the wrong place in the built environment. And let me ask you about your career, because... That sounds a bit geeky <laughs> that you're into bugs and moisture and fungus. <laughs> but how, how did you how, tell me about your career? How did you get into, into all of that? Uh, by total accident. Um, it was a total accident. So I, I left building college when I was sort of 20 with not a clue what I wanted to do, really. I went and did town and country planning for two years and realized I didn't want to be a town planner and ended up getting a job literally by accident with a preservation company. And so I did some time um, on site in the office. And then somebody saw something that they thought they could make a bit of progress with, I guess, in me. So I went and did some training and did some exams and all of that kind of stuff and ended up um, in a shirt and tie in a Ford Fiesta tearing around the streets of North Leeds um, looking at damp problems. So that was, that was 19, 1988. And so I worked for preservation companies in various um, guises big and small, for about 12 years. I was out there doing everything from very small domestic stuff to build great big milk conversions and um, quite sizable waterproofing projects. And then I was recruited to the PCA in about 2001. And so I've been with them since. And I started at the PCA as a techie person, so really going out and do audits. Um, so we, we, we visit and audit our members every every 12 to 18 months, two years at the moment. But um, at the time, we were visiting every 18 months. So I was um, dashing around the country, going to see lots and lots of jobs, lots and lots of contractors, um, making sure that they were doing the right thing. And then, you know, a bit of greasy pole climbing, a bit of backstabbing, a bit of slipping and sliding, and you end up end up running the trade association that's given you a living since you were, since you were 19. So... You know, I, I take the point of view in some respects. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've ended up, 
you know, at the sort of in, in some regards, the, the head of a trade association that, that that I know inside out and back to front. I've worked in lots of aspects of of the industry, and um, since I was since I was a sprog is what it is. I remember doing a few seminars talks for the BWPDA many years ago. It's probably in about the late eighties, and, and I remember going to some back room to a pub in Bolton to chat to um, about half a dozen local contractors about uh, rising dampness and stuff like that. I, I mean, um, the PCA are, are very much different to what they were then. You know, what, what was the driver for that? Or, was there a stated aim? Or I think that, that, that is, was there a driver? Yeah, it had to modernise. The, the association, when I joined the association, I can't tell you that it was doing a bad job because it wasn't. It had a lot of history. It had a lot of heritage, but it was it was quite inward looking, I think. And my predecessor, who was brought in with specifically to try and improve the communications inside the organisation and give us a much more outward facing sort of just just make us better at but, but the sort of external comms, um, had some great ideas. But she didn't really know the members. She didn't know what they did. And so I kind of got parachuted in and said, right, let's go back to basics. Well, what are we about? What are we trying to do? We're trying to do good work for good people and make a profit. And so break it all back down, take it back to its grassroots and build from there. And so, you know, we've changed, I think, the culture of the association. We've also taken the point of view that nobody's in this and can guarantee that they're in this trade association forever. If you don't toe the line, if you don't do the right thing, if you don't perform in the way that the organisation and your peers suggest you should and that you sign up to, then we'll, 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 we'll heave you out. But that said, you know, the organisation has, it, it's, it has no place in the world unless it's relevant. It has to be relevant to its members. And every trade association is really the same. It has to be relevant to its members. It has to deliver service. But it also has a covenant with consumers. And if you're going to hold the association up or any organization up as being something that they should look to for either quality or uh, you know, a, a decent, decent way of procuring any service, then you've got to back that up. And so it was, it, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, Phil. It was a straightforward, right, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be doing it? How do we move the job on? And I think in many respects, in the last sort of 10 or 15 years, the association has changed a great deal. But the fact is that it's, you know, we can't stand still. We've got to keep that, that change going. And if we, if, we, if, we, if we do sort of start to rest on our laurels at any point, we become less relevant. And that's, that's not where I want to be. Steve, can I ask you about the members? So how many members do you have? What type of members are there? There are different levels of membership. I know a few members in the Surveyor Hub. They are surveyors and they're PCA members as well. So what, how does all that work? So we've got, uh, very quickly, I'll kind of break it down. And, and, and please don't quote me exactly on the numbers because it does kind of change. But very roughly, we have a number of sectors that I've already mentioned across the kind of the moisture thing. So we have somewhere in the region of 300 contractor members. So they're out there doing work on a day-to-day basis. And they, so, they'll, so, they, so they'll be going out doing damp investigation work and damp surveys? or And they'll be doing work. They'll be doing contracting work as well as doing diagnostic investigations and all of that kind of stuff. Then we've got about another 100 um, members that are Japanese not weed contractors that are going out and looking at that sort of stuff, non-native related plants. 
Then we have manufacturers. So we have probably in the region of 35 manufacturers members, and they are everything from producers of powder products all the way through to preservatives, timber preservatives. And then we have a bunch of freelance and independent surveyors. And those freelance independent surveyors and consultants are all peer vetted. It's a, it's a relatively small group of people. But inside that group, there are a number of chartered surveyors as well. But they are chartered surveyors that have specialised. Yeah, and you said that you audit the surveyors, your members. Yeah. So they'd all have different types of audit, I guess, depending on the type of work, or are they regulated? The contractors are audited every two years. Absolutely. Without fail, they're audited every two years. The manufacturers, we check we check their efficacy certificates, so BBA certificates, and make sure the products are purpose. Though we don't do the audit, we don't do the, the, the kind of the product audits and all the rest of it. We make sure they're all there. With the, with the surveyors, we, they are all part of a CPD scheme. So we keep a very close eye on that. We check their insurances every year and we engage with them regularly. They're not audited as such, but we, we know who they all are and, and we keep in close contact with them through the CPD schemes. So generally, we, we, we try and make sure that we have good lines of communication both ways with, with all our members in all those sections. The, the other things that we run, of course, are things like complaints and dispute resolution services. So we quickly find, um, we, we, we very quickly find um, the bad boys. Um, if there's anybody not doing what they should do or not being fair with clients, then, then, then we're made aware of those. So a consumer, a consumer, if they've got a complaint, can go to the PCA to complain about a member? Absolutely. And yeah. they do. And, you know, 90% of the time, I would say that we generally all we have to do is, is, is shift a logjam, open lines of communication and get things mm. fixed. Occasionally, we have to adjudicate. And we have to sort of start to, 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 to apply a bit of pressure. But very, very, very seldom do we have to sort of get to the point where we're bringing disability proceedings against people. And this is, this is in part one of the advantages of having an association or having an organisation that has some value of being in it. If, 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 if there was no value in being in the association, I'm talking about commercial value, then we wouldn't be able to apply that pressure. But there is value in association. And so we, we're aware that we can apply pressure. And, you know, if people don't do what they're supposed to do, we will, we will, we will remove them. And they, the members know that. Um, Steve, can I just um, focus on the surveyor branch or part, yeah. part of your organisation? A few years ago now, I think I came down to St Ives, isn't it, where you're based? Uh, uh, we're not far away, yeah, hunting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. I, I thought St Ives was in Cornwall. But anyway, they, um, <laughs> uh, but, but we, we spoke about your um, certificate in remedial surveying timber treatment surveying, I, f- I forget the full initials, you know, the, the surveyor's qualification and making it, well, just tweaking it to make it more relevant for uh, chartered surveyors. And, and I know a number of surveyors have gone down that route. Is that um, a route that you want to encourage or would be happy to see grow? Yes, and absolutely. And your words were not lost on me, Phil, um, those few years ago. And in some regards, I kind of sometimes wish that the people that, you know, criticise what we do would kind of come and engage in the process. So, so let, me, let me pull two elements of, of what we do apart. The first is the training. So the training for, a, for somebody who wants to know about dampness. Generally, we, don't, we, we have never said, and this is, this is a little bit of a misconception, is that we don't make surveyors in three or four days. That, that just can't happen. What we do is take people with surveying knowledge and experience and teach them a little bit about dampness in three or four days. They then can, if they want to, go on and sit an exam. 
And so the, the exam for CSTDB, which is a right gobful, I know, but um, it's certified surveyor in um, dampness and timber preservation or whatever, timber dampness. Um, I even forget myself. <laughs> it mentioned it was a gobful of letters from the alphabet. But the, the fact is that that, that that qualification is six hours of written paper, two interviews, and an ID table, and that is then is then regulated by Abbey. And we're not the awarding body for that exam anymore. It's it's done through Abbey. So there is a big shift, as well, I might say, from, from what is the qualification to what is the training. So we do training on um, you know that surveying process, pra- practice stuff. But that's that's only really should ever be seen as as, as the basic element of, of instruction. We do we do three full days on dampness, condensation, and ventilation stuff, for example. We do a day on thermography. We do a day on uh, there is a, you know there's, there's, there's quite a, a lot of stuff there. If you're interested in dampness, then the, there ain't nothing that looks quite like us out there. Because um, that's the interesting. Uh, we get well, I say so many, but but I think a fair fairly significant number of surveyors is, is saying, look, you know, I do building surveys. I advise clients on. Um, sale or purchase of properties and things like that and and now i want to develop that specialism of being able to get into diagnostic services of being able to go along and and offer to owners the ability to take skirtings off look inside walls and and specify remedial schemes and it just seems like your certificate is is really well well made for that it, it's getting there it, it's not perfect because we can't again one of the things that we we know we can't do is we can't take people on site and mentor them and show them how to drill that hole and how to and how to, to take the sample. And they're all things that we would very much like to do, but we don't have those people for long enough. The, the kind of the interesting thing that's come out of lockdown, perhaps, is over the last couple of months, there was a lot of pressure for us in lockdown to simply convert the courses into, into, into online things. And I, I, I have to say that I... I resisted that quite strongly. I thought that if we're going to put stuff online, we can we can improve it. We can we can't just repeat what we're doing in the classroom. We can improve it. So we've 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 taken the idea and and, and out for consultation at the moment amongst a few people. We're, we're we're building an online training program which sort of goes from what was about eighteen and a half hours of actual sat down in front of a board and almost doubles it. But we're doing it as videos. We're going to might even do some augmented reality stuff. We, we, we're trying to build some more of that kind of surveying practice into that that course that that to date has really been about the theory of what we're doing rather than the practice of surveying. The practice of surveying, we've kind of hoped in many respects that that's been taught by an employer on site. That mentoring, that that site, that that kind of instinct following a trail of evidence that 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 inherent understanding that you have to go the extra mile to find out what's actually causing it that's not something we've been able to do and that's 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 if you like been the missing link so the exam does it, it does if you like examine that instinct but the course perhaps doesn't it's that's a really hard thing to um to navigate is that you know yeah and we've done the same you know we've delivered classroom sessions and now we're you know with our clients we're delivering them online and it is different the engagement is different you know sometimes in a classroom you know if people have been up early or traveled early to get there they're a bit weary and tired when they get in the room you know whereas they when they turn up online they're a bit more chatty because they've just come from their kitchen into their living room to, to start work but it's really hard and 
not hard. It's just different to engage people online. And I've seen that a lot over lockdown. There's been a lot of training that's just been, you know, copied onto a video and, and sold. And it's it's not it's not great. And you know, and then when you then sort of take it a step further, and you're right to really look at the content that you've got and to reimagine it and rework it. And it might end up being longer, but we've got to think about the different modalities and the way that people learn. Some are, are good at reading, some are, are very you know, are very visual, other people are very sort of kinesthetic and need to actually work through. And that then leads on to, you're absolutely right, that whole mentoring and being in the room, in the property. And I think as property professionals, not just surveyors, there's a, you know, we think we have, you know, five senses, six, if you, if you think that way, but actually we've got millions, millions and millions of senses. And when you walk into a room, a number of times surveyors have told me they can smell dampness. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you might be able to smell it, but still write it down and tell me what you think and get the evidence because that helps with a court case. But, but when you walk into a room, it's your senses. And as you feel the wall and it's sort of very tactile and all of that, that you, you can't really replicate in a, you know, in a, an online session or even a classroom session, really. That, that, I, I, you know, it's very interesting you say that. I've, I've kind of, I used to do a bit of teaching. I don't do that much anymore. But, you know, I can smell damp. No, no, you can't smell damp. What you can smell is the product of damp. You can smell something rotting or falling apart as a result of there being a moisture imbalance. And that is where you then, you know, your, your spider senses should start to tingle and think, right, you've got to find out what's failing. You've got yeah. to find out where yeah. the rot is, where the mold is, and what the, and what the mechanisms are involved in causing that. Because it's there. There's no doubt that you can smell the result of That's it. And, and the thing when it comes to, so my, my background is defect and valuation claims. And that's the thing when it comes to a claim. It's like, okay, you could smell dampness. And I've, over the years, many a surveyor has told me that. But you've got to, it's that following the trail. It's the, well, where is it? What is it? What's been causing it? What's, you know, in the context of the, is it a valuation or a survey or a building survey that you've been doing, you know, and it's going that step further and making sure you've got the good, just good records, you know, the, to, to support all of that, you know? I think, I think the thing that I find, there's a couple of things to kind of follow up on the things that you said, but I think the, the, the thing that I've always found difficult, or find difficult now, more than even when I was out there um, looking at buildings and pulling them apart, is, is the, 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 the amount of constraint that's, supposed, that, that's applied to the surveyor when they're trying to do a, a, a diagnostic investigation. Mm, mm. You know, I... I Electronic moisture meters are, are actually a brilliant piece of kit for evaluating when something's dry. You stick it in a wall and it says that there isn't a reading, then you can be pretty sure that it's dry. The moment it starts to give you a reading, that's when you start to take the building apart um, in whatever way it is to try and find out why that's giving you a deflection on a meter. Unless you can start to break the surface of that wall or take a skirting board off or get under a floor or, or, or do further... You are so restrained, so constrained by by the the limitations that are placed on you. By either it's, it's not just always vendors; it's sometimes property owners that have asked you to come in and look for a problem, and they still won't let you let you actually investigate it properly. I find that very difficult. I think I think how on earth can you work professionally with one hand tied hand tied behind your back? Yeah, but I guess I guess on the one hand, there's wanting to do a job properly. And to to find the dampness and, and, and solve the problem and, and allow that building to then continue and thrive and not fall, fall into disrepair. And I guess for surveyors, though, you've got the scope of what you're being paid to do. The valuation, you know, many evaluation report does, is tick box now. It doesn't allow you to, 
to write in your standard paragraphs and, you know, and very often a a valuer or surveyor will, you know, has only got to highlight the fact there's something there or they suspect there's something there and further investigation, you know, you go and get a full damp report and and things, but it's all about the purpose of it. And, and I think the purpose of it is for mortgage lending, you know, we forget the purpose, is it for someone to move in you know, into and, a property? And you know, we're all coming at it from different angles, aren't yeah. we? But, but Marianne, I think I think I, I kind of get the whole valuation, the constraints of valuation, and even of, of kind of level two surveys. But the fact is, by the time that my boys and girls arrived on site, you're being asked to investigate. Usually, you're investigate, asked to investigate something that has come up as a result of those concerns expressed by a, by a charter surveyor. So at some point, in order to get to the the... the the defects and really understand those defects there's got to be some provision for for, for, for good investigation we, we have situations now where surveyors aren't even at all by 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 vendors or, or owners they can't even stick a moisture meter into the into the skirting boards mm. or into the into the wallpaper god only knows what would happen if you actually said well i've come to do some gravimetric tests or some, take some speedy samples it's abhorrence and no you're not going to do that well you know what what chance do we have are you trying to investigate you've got some dampness in a structure, you want to open up and find out whether you've got a lintel or a bressemer or some joist ends that, that may be affected by that. So, so what, what's, the suggest, uh, what, what's the resolution of that? What's the solution, especially in relation to, we are locked into this lending sort of policies and, and things like that. So is there a workaround for that restriction? I'm not necessarily sure there is, but I take the point of view, if I was a purchaser, and I have been a purchaser, and I'm, I dare say at some point I will be again, Purchasers should be empowered to actually be able to um, press their professionals for good diagnostics. And I think that they're, in many respects, they don't feel empowered to be able to do that. They, they, they just aren't. Now, um, this, is, this is not really a commentary on the, on the, on the issues surrounding valuation and, the, mm. and, and all of that stuff. This is, this is just about basic, you know, do we want to know what's wrong with that building really or don't we? And if we do, then, it, you know, none of us have got, x-ray specs or magic hands we can't just lay them on and know what's going on we have to look. yeah you're absolutely right and i think you know whereas the the focus is on actually getting the property transaction happening quicker you know that's all everybody's focused on is the speed of how quickly we can get a sale through but actually if we took a another angle of how do we make sure that the housing stock in the uk is as good a quality as it needs to be you know, we would then look at things very differently. If that was a priority on all the transactions, all the direction, the individuals, the policies, legislations out there. Because if people live in homes that are safe, warm, dry, and in in good condition, we all then thrive as individuals. Now that might sound like some kind of utopia or idealistic, but actually that's what we're in the business of. We're in the business of helping people with their homes. But, but Marion, it's not, it's not, it's not some unachievable utopian situation. Um, well, exactly. I mean, you're, but you're, you're, I, I think it's achievable. You know, you or I, as, as homeowners, can take a leaf out of, let's say, the the, the kind of the, the, the church's book. I've been trying to get my members to to get their heads around the fact that at the moment their business is based on a single inquiry, and somebody's after some assurances that the problem is going to go away. And please, can I have a guarantee as well? move that away get rid of that business model it's not it's not it's not very good it's not doesn't deliver the best best service to, to clients it doesn't actually bring the best out in, in specialists either there is nothing I don't, I, I've been trying to say to my members for, for many years now it's all right to say you don't know 
it's not all right to say you'll never know because there's ways to find out. So actually engage with those people and say that you'll have a longer term relationship with them to start eliminating certain elements and certain obvious defects and then, then drill down into the problem. And perhaps it will take you three or four years to get to, to the nub of the problem. And then beyond that, actually, what's the point? What's the problem with 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 engaging with them on on maintenance and and periodic inspection? And I think I, I think you're you're right. Then that's a similar. Who'd have thought we'd have so much in common, Steve? It's a similar thing that I talk about to surveyors because it's just not one transaction. You do a survey, you get paid for it. That's it. We should be thinking about the relationships that we have with our clients and what goes on before and what goes on afterwards. And in that regard, then you know we talk about having uh, dampness and then damp guarantee that's issued you know and actually the ones that I've seen or the problems that I've then seen later not that it's not been worth the paper it's written on but actually the problem's been so complex or there's been something else that's happened that actually it should have been more of a an ongoing maintenance plan to look at a property as to why it's got dampness because actually buildings are living breathing things and every time a different family comes in you know you get different uh, amount of condensation and bodily functions and pets and all of those things and we need to see it as 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 continuous one of the things i'm mindful of that i've that i've noticed over the years since i was out on the tools doing doing inspections is that actually a lot of surveyors particularly if they're doing mortgage lending work is that they don't always get to see the report that's the diagnostic report or dump survey whatever you you call it back from the, the specialist who's inspected it so they might go into a property identify that there is a problem and a further report inspection is needed but if that's the amount of work is not a lot of money it actually doesn't always come back through the lender and the surveyor doesn't always get to see it and I I think there's a a bit of an issue there of surveyors actually not being familiar with that kind of work and what happens on an inspection and what a a report you know technical survey dump report would look like because it's just just because the way the world the world is working now with processes and systems that they're not actually being exposed to that. I think that's there's a lot of truth to, to, to what you just said I also kind of take the point of view you talk about a, a building is living and breathing i've got to, buildings don't breathe they get wet and they dry out again they get they get moisture loadings that they can handle or they can't sorry steve i got to interrupt that i knew it wouldn't be long before marion <laughs> marion said the the b word the breathing yeah, word and i knew exactly how you'd react sorry well you see well you see i i see it as you know buildings have character and they're you know they're yeah okay it, I'm, it's I'm just honest. that breathing word i've heard steve talk <laughs> i don't mean breathe so. breathable membranes and things like that but no, the I'll, fact I'll, that we, need, up now we need to treat our buildings as not let me find the right words for it as just not fixed structures you know that there's they, something that's there's more to them than that the, the, the fact is that we that we know without doubt that if we look after a building it will serve as well if we ignore it and we, we treat it badly and we, we don't maintain it, it, it will fail. As long as sky, water falls out of the sky, water will get into badly, badly maintained buildings. It's as simple as that. And if water gets in, then you'll have problems. And there is, there is, there is a huge amount to be said for, for regular repair and maintenance. The other thing, just to sort of come back on, on something you said about guarantees. Guarantees are, are, are the work of the devil as far as I'm concerned. The fact is that if you get a, a contractor that's told that they require, or a client requires a guarantee at the end of the job, then the contractor will draw up a specification that means that they're going to issue a guarantee. 
it not necessarily to do the most sympathetic or or, 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 or inexpensive repair, but the repair that's necessary in order to get to a point where they can issue a guarantee for 10 years on it. And, and the two things are different. But whether, whether we'd like to admit it or not, the two things are different. If you're going to have a long-term engagement with the client with no requirement for guarantee, you're going to be motivated to work on that property in a slow, methodical, holistic way. If you're given one shot to go up, do an inspection, write a specification, and at the end of the process, issue a guarantee that's going to guarantee that that building is dry for 10 years, then that causes there to be all sorts of conflicts in that process. And I guess what's... Yeah, and I guess what drives a lot of that actually is lenders, you know, because it suits their, you know, that a lot of them don't have retentions and things now. It sort of suits their processes to have a tick. It's got a guarantee. Marion, it suits everybody. See, we can't just blame the lenders. It, it, we, 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 we can blame the lenders because they get a ticket in a box to say that if they have to repossess... Yeah, but it's easier to say blame the lenders because we all do that. We can, we, we can blame <laughs> the contractors because that means that they've got some leverage. They've got something that they can sell, including the, you know, other than the work is guaranteed. And clients like them. Clients love guarantees. This is a piece of paper that says it's going to be okay for the next 15 or 10, 15 years. So everybody in the whole chain has become addicted to these things, but they don't necessarily serve anybody that well. In, in, you know, in my own humble opinion, you know, that said, there is a whole industry built up around insuring guarantees, not just in our sector, whether it's roofing or building or whatever it is. And it's, and it's a peculiar situation. If you stand back at it and look at it from a distance, it's odd. You know, I'd love to be in a position where PCA members didn't issue guarantees anymore, but were trusted that if there is a defect or if there's anything else, they would come back. There will be an assurance that that company is still going to be in trade, trading ethically, and they will come back and work with that client to fix it. Um, that's where I, you know, in an ideal world, that's where that's where any trade association wants to see its members. Not issuing paper guarantees, but, but actually respected for the fact that they're they're good enough, they've got enough longevity and they're ethical enough to come back and sort any problems that occur. Can I just pick up that topic, Steve, and, and move the ground slightly? I think there's a pun there somewhere. <laughs> talk, about, talk about Japanese knotweed because, you know, you, your members, your association have got involved in invasive species. And um, it's also an area where, should we say, uh, the lenders are getting very agitated about and it's uh, affecting lending policy and it's very controversial. And uh, as you know, because we're on the sort of same working party, that there's a rethink going on, isn't there, allegedly, around has some of the policies around Japanese knotweed, some of the active distances away from it, a bit overstated. Um, I mean, do you have a view on that or, or what's your thoughts around that topic? Oh, and you know I have a view on this. <laughs> but, That's but, why I asked. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the, the, we came, as the PCA came to this, and it's partly your fault, as you know, Phil. I met a group of invasive weed specialists probably 10 years ago now who, who asked us, and I won't, I'll spare you all the, all the details, but asked us if we think about setting them up a trade association. So we, we, we brought those specialists in and grew that trade body. Now, we were working essentially off the original document the RICS had produced, the, the, the guidance note, which set out the seven-meter rules. So we actually developed our own codes of practice around that seven-meter rule. Now, about four years ago, and it was probably about four years ago, we approached RICS and said, we think the four-year meters is a bit long, a bit, bit much. We think we'd like to reduce it. And it was a bit like, you know, well, it, it didn't go down totally kind of without a fight. 
And RICS said, well, I don't know whether you can do this. I don't, I don't know whether this is safe. We're worried about lots of worries about liability and all the rest of it. Um, we did, as you probably know, redraft the RICS guidance about three, two and a half, three years ago. And RICS didn't like it. Then two years ago, the Scientific Technology Committee at Westminster said, we think seven metres is draconian and mean and horrible. And so, yeah, you know, we were asked to go along to Portcullis House and give evidence. And we said, yeah, we also think that seven metres is a bit wrong. There's some work to be done here. But I have to say that only part of what that Science and Technology Committee did was in relation to conveyancing. A lot of the stuff that they were concerned about was boundaries with things like network rail land and waterways land that was also contaminated. And there was a block and a blight on, on sales. And the problems that homeowners would have actually being stuck with buildings that were you know, massively downvalued because they were, they were, they were against, against boundaries. Now, okay, you asked me for an opinion, and this is where you know, I get my collar felt by my members. Japanese knotweed is a it's a weed. It isn't, it isn't the destroyer of worlds. It, it doesn't steal your babies. It doesn't pull your house down in the night. Um, it can be got rid of, but it's tenacious and it's a pest. And it's difficult to, to kind of to get rid of unless you do it in a methodically long-term way. Or dig it out. And even if you dig it out, you've still got to make sure you go back to site and you haven't got any regrowth for, for a considerable period of time afterwards. So our view is that in many respects, its reputation is overdone. But in other respects the seriousness in which it's tackled is not. It still has to be done properly. Is the issue about kind of devaluation and the blight that it brings to properties, is that fair? In some respects, I should like claim the fifth to say it's not my problem. But what I would say to you, Phil, and I've said this for, for, for many years to many different people, I would certainly buy a house of Japanese knotweed in the garden. I'd think twice about a house with dry rot in it. I know, and that's a powerful argument. But the one, the one thing about JK, and we, we, we've had some of these discussions in various work parties, working parties, is that it, it, it's tenaciousness, and also the problem is, is, is if it spreads around two or three properties, and you've got that neighbour issue. And yeah, it is only a plant, but it's a very invasive plant. I mean, buddleia. It's often thrown against me that we spend more on getting rid of buddleia than we do Japanese knotweed. But do you know what? You dig up buddleia, you take it out the masonry where it's growing, and it's gone. But unless you can get, you know, the two or three properties that affects jointly acting in that very comprehensive and, and, uh, well, tenacious way, then it's going to come back again and again and spoil that quiet enjoyment. I absolutely, totally agree with you, Phil. And the other thing that, you know, when these conversations go around a room, that people sort of don't, I don't think, always take on, on board is that the cat is out of the bag. The fact is that if I was buying a house and there was knotweed in the garden, I wouldn't want that. I, I, would, I would want there to be a treatment program. I want, would want to know I could eradicate it in the long term so it didn't cause me a, a problem down the line. And that's not an unreasonable thing for any purchaser or property owner to do. Um, you can't just wipe that away by saying, well, we got this kind of wrong. It is what it is. It, it does blight. And for all the reasons that you've said, it's a problem. It's a nuisance. And the fact is that there are people being sued. Um, neighbours are suing neighbours. Purchasers are suing surveyors. Homeowners are suing, suing um, you know, people like Network Rail on, on, on a regular basis now. And you can't, you can't put that back in the bag. Mm. It's a reality. And we have to deal with realities and, and not with how we kind of might like it to be. 
Yeah, because um, I, I think there's a lot of that going on. That you know, there's been some research carried out, and it did involve your members, and uh, I think that's a good good step in the right direction. But it's just the first, hopefully, of many research projects that are going to you know give us more data and more information. But yeah, people are, and and I think lenders are, are driving it, in my view, that they want to lend money that they don't want their sales, their lending opportunities fettered by, um, you know, these surveyors going around and spotting knotweed and uh, putting the scuppers on the deal. Oh, it's very cynical, Phil. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It gets me into a lot of trouble, can I say. That's my night. Lenders are our friends. Lenders are our friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what I would say, just to round that off, if I know that we can carry on as long as you like, but Marion, the, the, the fact is that the seven metre rule is reducing. Now, there is no direct evidence that a Japanese knotweed stand less than seven metre within a couple of metres of a building is going to cause structural damage. There never has been, and you've never seen anything. So where, where did the seven metres come from? You want the truth? A very obscure paper written by a scientist in an un... It's out there somewhere. Um, and I had a copy of it, but it is literally a few lines. And what, it, what they did was they looked at Japanese knotweed growing in the most perfect conditions in South Wales and speculated that the rhizome and the roots could go to seven metres. And that's where seven metres got picked up right. and it got stuck and it, got, it, and it became, it's almost, it's almost legend rather than fact. It's a bit like that, uh, the myth about having eight glasses of water a day. You don't actually have to have eight glasses of water a day. If It's only if there you is, don't eat anything else at all. <laughs> there, there is no doubt that a Japanese knotweed root will go down a pipe or go down a, fas- a fissure or a crack. Mm. And it, will, it will go seven metres. There's no question about that. But the fact is it's, it's unlikely to pop up all over the place. Mm. Um, in the same way, even if it's quite close to a building, it doesn't have the biomass to start breaking breaking buildings apart like a like a sycamore tree. Would. And I guess it's like with anything, you know. Now we know we do better. You know, now we know more about it. Now there's more research. Now we do better in terms of our, our advice and guidance. Can I uh, just touch on and ask you about these sort of green vouchers? So it's been in the in the press of late, and we've seen it on on all our social media feeds about vouchers and discounts and things like that you can get to make your home more energy efficient so the green home grant scheme is to launch on the 30th of september and basically in a nutshell it's giving every one of us in a in a building that qualifies five grand contribution from the government to spend on 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 energy saving measures and for people who are on benefits or um, or, or qualified they can get up to ten thousand there is a contribution for homeowners. Our issue around the whole thing is, um, in many respects, we understand that it, it is a, it's a job creation scheme. Um, it, first and foremost, this is a scheme to create work. And it was kind of the whole issue of improving the thermal performance of buildings, energy performance of buildings has been in the government um, government agenda for, for quite some time. And so this, this is the, the idea is, is this scheme will kickstart it. Our real concerns are that, and, and this has come through bitter experience, is that you don't insulate damp houses and you don't put insulation over cracks, defects, or anything else of that nature. And when you do vent, when, when you do insulate a building, then fundamentally what you're doing is reducing the amount of natural infiltration. So the air exchange, you, what you describe as breathing. But breathing. Um, <laughs> the fact that the, the, the air escapes, and with it, moist air escapes. And it goes out through the fabric of the building and the building, hopefully, to remain in moist balance. So you insulate a building, you reduce that. 
that's that's part of the plan. And so you must then bring the building back into balance, usually by mechanical ventilation or, or other means to, to make sure you do that. And what, what, what we're concerned about is that if you look back at the eco schemes and the, the not Green Deal, because hardly anything got done on the Green Deal, but 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 the other government-funded schemes, particularly schemes that were time limited, that were restricted by the by, by the amount you could spend and how you could spend it, it delivered a lot of very poor quality retrofit. Buildings were were were, were thoughtlessly or poorly retrofitted, and and the, the the primary primary result of that poor retrofitting is is moisture. So whether it's moisture coming through an external wall or whether it's getting in the back of insulation materials and they can't get back out again, or whether it's um, atmospheric imbalance because, because you've changed, you changed the building completely, or even cold bridges and things that haven't been insulated properly, so the lack of continuity. So what we're trying to do at the moment, and we've done a little microsite on it, we've actually put stats of stuff out into the um, those blogs and one or two other things, is, is really trying to get people to understand that take some control over the procurement process of your retrofit. Be a good client. Ask the right questions. Get problems checked out before you cover it with polystyrene. You know, make sure, for example, your cavity wall ties are in good nick before you fill them with fill, fill them with gunk. Um, because once it's in there, the job of changing those mm. ties potentially gets much more expensive and much more difficult. Yeah. So do it first. Yeah, and we see um, we see a lot of that actually in the surveyor hub regularly sort of pictures being posted of things that people have seen and actually quite some distressing stories of you know sometimes it's little old ladies feeling that they've they've been scammed but actually you know how you know buildings have just been destroyed there's actually an article in the times this weekend over you know sort of cavity wall insulation and, and things and it's a it's a real shame but how do you how do you stop that? Because it looks too good to be true. The government are throwing money to say, woohoo, get your home insulated. Do it within a couple of months because it's this time limited, isn't it? This, uh, uh, this money, you know, but how do we, how do we bring some regulation or, or quality assurance into that? After the eco schemes and after the scandals of eco, and I think they were scandals, you know, I don't mind calling it that. Um, Bonfield, um, Peter Bonfield was asked to to, to draw up a, a report, and it was called Each Home Counts. And what came out of Each Home Counts was the the, the, the realization that there wasn't very much quality control over the works that were being done under these schemes. And so, a thing called PAS twenty thirty five appeared, a standard that actually sets out a good roadmap for, for the delivery of retrofit, which requires designers and assessors and contractors to kind of work as a team before the thing is signed off. Now, unfortunately, because of the the haste around this scheme, we've gone back to PASs. So this is being delivered under under PAS 2030-17, which doesn't require all those checks and balances. So actually, it's simple, is, is the answer to your question. We invoke 2035. Problem is, you can't do that because all the people that need to be qualified to, to undertake the roles associated with 2035 aren't there yet. They haven't, they haven't gone through the system quite yet. So we're probably another six to nine months away from from being able to operate these sorts of schemes under that under that quality control system. And there are two elements really that, that worry me most about the about the announcement. The first is is the cutoff date, the the, the defined cutoff date at um, at the end of March, which means that you know the work has to be finished and the vouchers redeemed. And if you haven't finished, well betide. That is going to push quality down the down the list of priorities. And the other element, of course, is that if you don't have work to continue with, 
if there isn't a promise of additional grant beyond that time, where is the motivation to create good work? Companies will skill up, they'll get enough people in to do the work, they'll cash in their vouchers, and then they're gone, like Will of the Wisp, off, off into the woods with all the cash in their pockets, with no liability for, for what they've left behind. So those two, two, those two dates, or that date of the 31st of March, is really significant. And if, and if there was some flexibility on that and some pragmatism around it, then actually I think that would drive quality. Uh, Steve, are you saying or suggesting, uh, or would it be right if I suggested, then maybe our ICS associations like yourself and maybe just chart surveyors um, say to the public, don't get involved with this? Or, or... Oh, I, think, I think it's not a case of don't get involved with it because fundamentally, Phil, I think that you know, I, I am an advocate of, of making our buildings more energy efficient. It's, it's, it's unavoidable and we've got to do it. We've got to do it for the sake of our kids and the planet and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm, I get all of that. But, uh, but what I don't want to see and yes, all right, my world is dampness and fungus and mould and all that kind of boring stuff, geeky. <laughs> but I don't want to see nations that are well-intentioned having a massively detrimental effect on, on that underlying housing stock, especially when that can be avoided. You know, if you apply this stuff in the right way to buildings that are good in the first place and then maintain them, then that's fine. But, you know, the practice of using external wall insulation and then capping features with a piece of UPVC stuck down with, with mastic, it, it's suicidal. It's how can that possibly work for the you know 30-year life of that building when you know the mastic um, is going to last uh, six months? I mean, the one thing that is really getting a lot of discussion on the surveyor's hub is uh, sprayed foam insulation in lofts you know, on a whole range of properties from, you know, older traditionally constructed ones without sarking felt to relatively newer ones. And um, that's led to problems with lending, for example. Some lenders won't lend on property treated as such. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, what, what's your view on that, on the sprayed foam loft installation? Okay, well, here's, here's where I welcome the risk. I think it's abhorrent. I think it's nuts in every way. You know, not only does it make whatever the roofing material is that you're applying to it, you know, it's scrap if you ever have to replace it in the, in the, in the future. But just from a, from a moisture position, you know, you spray the timbers, you spray the lats, you cover it all in, in, in essentially a waterproof material, but still take the point of view that the external roofing materials, whether it's slate or concrete tiles or whatever it is, are to some degree moisture permeable and it has nowhere to go. And so the moisture contents and the moisture profiles in those embedded timbers can do all sorts of strange things. And the first, the first you know of, of, of a problem is usually when the roof starts to fail. So woodworm, for example, common furniture beetle, are very moisture sensitive. You know, if, if, a, if a roof is completely dry, then it will retard or, or, or desiccate out any infestation that's there. Here in this material, God only knows what's going on in the beetle. You know, those bugs can munch about for, for, for fun. Yeah, one thing we don't see a lot of, we see lots of pictures of newly sprayed or very nice, nicely sprayed uh, roof, uh, insides of roofs, but we don't actually see the rot. We don't see the bugs. We don't see the ugly pictures. I'm, I'm inclined to say, have you got any you can share <laughs> in, a, in a really geeky kind of uh, weird way? We have we have, Marion, and I had a couple that were that were put before me a little while ago, only a, only a couple of months ago, where in a terrace of houses, the wall plates had gone. And that was because there was some defect. There was some external defect. Of course, there was with the gutters or the, the lower part of the roof. But the timber, the, the wall had got wet. 
top of the masonry had got wet and it and it caused decay in the in the in the in the wall plate. And the result was star feet had collapsed into the into the wall plate and the roof. So it, those things are not are not uncommon. And if you if, if you just think about kind of how a roof fails, it's inevitable that those sorts of defects will come about. You know, I've had as much, I, I've, I've had a, a number of, I, in fact, I had a, a, a contact through LinkedIn the other day that asked me this very question. What, what is the PCA's view on sprayed insulation? Um, my answer is, I don't think the PCA have had that conversation, but if you're asking me as a CEO of the PCA, I don't think it can ever be justified. I don't think it, it would never be, it would never be something that we could ever see any value in. But that's the, that is, that's the difficult part then, isn't it? Because, you know, from a consumer's point of view, they'll see an ad in a newspaper or on Facebook or whatever, and it's got, you know, approved by this, that and the other, and it all looks very professional. The government's funding it. It must be okay. But actually, you know, yeah, we're saying it's not great. The government you know? are also spraying um, spray insulation on the other side of, uh, of the suspended timber floors. Another area where actually, if you think about it, the vapor check is probably in a better better place because it's because it's because it's on the cold. It's, it's, well, sorry, it's on the. You're actually protecting it. And you're putting those timbers into the into the living accommodation rather than exposing to the conditions in the void. But the fact is that even with spraying subfloor timbers with polyurethane foam, it to me sounds nuts. If you have a joist that's kind of vaguely at about equilibrium as it's sat in a pocket into a wall and it's just on the right side of rock, you cover it in polyurethane foam and it won't be. It's almost bound that the moisture contents will, will, will increase. And if that's the case, they'll rot. We saw a flush of, a lush of this, when, a flush of this, should I say, back when laminate floors first became popular. It were great, loads of them everywhere. But they, the, for our industry, it did us huge amounts of favours because basically it changed, cut out all the vapour exchange between the, the occupied space and the voids. And the first time you knew there was a problem was not when you had some sort of small defect, but usually when the floor collapsed because you couldn't see it. You mm-hmm. get underneath, there was no inspection mm-hmm. And that's kind of the same with, with, with floors that are covered in polyurethane. Or roofs, you can't see roofs, those, yeah. those, are, those are important structural construction items that you now look and no longer see. And that can't be right. Just from that point of view, it can't be right. Yeah. Look, Steve, it's been really good to talk to you today. Thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.